Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast, a joint production of Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Klobis, and today I'm speaking with Ismar Volich, author of the book Making Democracy Count, How Mathematics Improves Voting, Electoral Maps, and Representation. Ismar, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you very much for having me. Well, thanks for agreeing to be on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Well, I'm a professor of mathematics at Wellesley College, and I uh, am a co-founder and the director of the Institute for Mathematics and Democracy. Uh, I'm also uh, an immigrant from Bosnia. I moved to the United States in the early 90s during the during the war that that had happened there uh, over over those years, and that and that is not irrelevant to to what I do and what I write in in this book. So, coming, it's interesting to read a book about politics that comes from somebody with a background in mathematics and it is so central to your book albeit i should add in a way that is uh very accessible to non-mathematicians such as myself what led you to undertake this book and in particular uh in what uh, in what way did you feel that mathematics offered uh, a particular particularly valuable perspective on on your subject uh, right. So, so I've always had this uh, interest in how mathematics and, and society or, or questions of so, so, social issues, questions of social justice interacted. And they do interact uh, much more than, than uh, an ordinary person might realize. So uh, over the years, I had, I had sort of done various things in this space of kind of mathematics and interaction with, with social, social issues, which led to my uh, teaching a class on math and politics. Um, a few years ago, that was really sort of eye-opening uh, and exciting. It attracted students who normally would not have, you know, otherwise shown up in the math department just to take, you know, calculus class or something. <laughs> but I got to, I got to meet lots of fantastic people who were interested in the idea that that quantitative approach had something to say about democracy, could inform us how to uh, devise better ways of running our democracy. So uh, that's what then led me to to found this institute and, and ultimately uh, write this. It's a, it's and what does mathematics have to say about this? Well, I'm sorry, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Now, I was going to say, having uh, you know, uh, yeah. written this book, you, you, you pro- one of the things I found very refreshing about it was that you approach, you don't talk about just one aspect of politics, but you address several of them and show how mathematics can provide us with a, a better approach to making decisions in our society. And I was wondering if you could start us off by talking in a bit more detail about voting and what it is you see as uh, sort of the, you know, how mathematics demonstrates the flaws and how we, current, we currently choose winners in the American political process. And, and then perhaps talk a bit about uh, what are some of the alternatives 
and how mathematics points to how they provide us with maybe better uh, outcomes than the ones we currently obtain. Right. So voting is certainly the most salient of these of these mechanisms of, of democracy that that run on mathematics. Right. So so the background to the, the sort of the big picture is uh, our democracy. There's an instru- infrastructure to our democracy. Uh, there are processes that help our democracy run. And it turns out many of them are quite mathematical or, or, or algorithmic right at their core. So this is where mathematics co- comes in. The idea is math can uh, inform which of these or tell us which of these processes function well, which don't work so well and can suggest some better ones perhaps. And voting, like you say, is sort of the the prime example, right? So uh, I mean, yet it's from a universal, mathematical, objective, sort of nonpartisan point of view, it really is informative. It can tell us how voting can better represent the sort of the will of the people. So the way we vote, uh, the basic problem is that we don't really gather enough information from the voter. So what we do in most of our, you know, vast majority of the five, some 520,000 elected officials in the United States, uh, and around the world, the U.S. is not special in, in this regard, are elected using the winner-take-all or plurality voting. This just means that a voter goes in to the you know, uh, voting booth and circles one and only one name on the ballot. And then the person with the most votes wins. This is a process that's been in place for hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. It's simple. It's familiar to people. And most people perform this uh, civic duty and walk out of the uh, voting booth without thinking about it, giving it a second thought. But the problem with this mathematically is that so little information is taken from the voter that there's very little that one can do to then tally the votes. Basically, what you're left with is just this thing I described. You add up all the total votes and the person with the most votes wins. However, as soon as you have three or more uh, candidates, someone could get the most votes without having the majority of the votes. And this is the the genesis, the core of all the mathematical problems that exist with plurality voting. So some of the things that could happen in the background, and I can get into those uh, uh, further if you'd like, are some things that are maybe even familiar to our listeners who are, who are uh, probably educated about these things, uh, like vote splitting or spoiler effect. And both those things uh, can cause someone to win without really truly being the choice of the majority of the people. But we can know this with the plurality voting because plurality didn't collect, didn't gather enough information from the voters to tell it, to give, to provide this information. There are other more subtle uh, consequences of the winner-take-all voting. Uh, there's something called the Duverger law, which basically says that uh, winner-take-all voting supports duopolies. It really uh, encourages uh, creation and survival of just two parties. So so one of the reasons why we have these two big parties that dominate our, well, that, that are the political system in the United States is because of the Verger law and plurality voting. Um, this voting encourages uh, things like negative campaigning, discourages diversity of, of opinions and candidates and third parties, et cetera. So there are all these consequences really detrimental for democracy simply because of this of this mechanism of voting that we employ winner take all. So there are if, better if I, if I can interject something real quickly. 
there's something about the book that I, I want to make sure uh, is is conveyed in this section, which is which is one of the reasons why I find it uh, found it such a fascinating section, is that what you're talking about at its core is not politics as much as it is decision making, and, and that's one of the things I, I really enjoyed about this section in particular because you're talking about this this idea of how we make decisions, and, and the way you frame it is is I, I, I especially enjoyed, which was how you talk about how sometimes we decide what movies a class is going to watch or what we're going to order for dinner and how it, it, this it's it's a process that we use different methods in different contexts and and how they're by seeing in those terms and how sometimes we we can relate it in, in terms of how we sometimes do get these flawed choices we end up going to the restaurant that we don't want to go to or we end up watching a movie that is not our preferred preferred movie and how when you, the the sometimes the frustrations or absurdity that come across when you boil it down to that uh that that uh, plurality voting that 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 first past the post uh you know whoever can you know do the best among the pool and and how it really demonstrates how it's not just the best it's not just necessarily the worst way to choose a candidate or 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 uh from a pool but also it's kind of just a poor way of decision making generally given the uh range of choices that are available Absolutely. It, 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 this, this, what we're talking about, right, is anytime that a group of people has to make a choice uh, on 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 anything, right? <laughs> so you know, like you say, I give I give examples of you know ordering pizza or going to a restaurant, or my family voting on what movie we're gonna watch on on a, on a Saturday night. So it, there there's a wide range of of situations that this this, this applies to, uh, absolutely. And uh, it, it, right, and and. But sort of bringing it into the the formal framework of mathematics removes all those connotations, all all the baggage of of politics or you know intrafamily relationships, uh, uh, any of that. It just set sort of sets up an axiomatic framework where we can sort of free ourselves of the sort of worldly right. So there's no more politics. There's no more you know opinion, uh, community, tradition, history, religion. None of that, right? We're just looking at this mathematically, and mathematics says you are not collecting enough information when you do first pass the post, winner take all. You should collect more. And this is where these other, more sophisticated, better methods of voting ar- arise, uh, which I can which I can talk about uh, if you'd like. Please do. I, I mean, I, some of them uh, were familiar to me. I mean, I'd, I'd heard of some of them. We, you, as you point out in, in your description that some places they're already beginning to implement some of these systems, but there were others with which I was a little unfamiliar. I was wondering if you could perhaps review them, maybe talk about how we're seeing some outcomes and, and also some of the, some of the, uh, the downsides, because as you, uh, admit it, it, it periodically in the book, not, none of these systems is perfect. None of these systems is necessarily going to guarantee that, that, you know, the, the, we're going to be satisfied with, with the outcome in every case. That's right. So one nice thing about uh, approaching this question mathematically is that you can set it up in a mathematical, axiomatic, formal framework. But then that, it's ultimately about something that happens in the real world. And the question there is, what is the best method? What should we use for our election? And this is where math kind of hits, a, hits the wall. Math is not that good at saying what's the best uh, if you have many options, because these options are good in their own ways. And Perhaps one is better in a certain situation than the other. So this is where a little bit of a tension and a potentially disagreement among, among 
experts uh, comes into play. But but let me back up and, and say what some of these uh, most sort of famous or well-known methods are. So one class of methods has to do with uh, voters not just selecting their first choice, but selecting the first, the second, the third, et cetera, ranking the options. And a voter may rank as many options as they want to, or they may rank a full slate of candidates. Sometimes this is a lot of people, like, I don't know, you know, you might have 17 people running for seats on the school board in town or something, and you don't really, you only understand, you know, three people, so you rank those three of them. Uh, so everybody turns in a ranked ballot, so they've ranked some of these candidates. Then there are various ways to actually tally the votes now. And this is an important distinction that that is that is not so familiar even to people who've heard of ranked choice voting, which is what I'm talking about. Uh, ranked choice voting in the real world is synonymous with what's called instant runoff. And instant runoff is just one way of tallying ranked ballots. There are a couple of at, at least a couple of other important ones, but instant runoff is sort of the main one because again, it's most widely used. Uh, in actual elections um, around the country and, and around the world. And what that does, it, it's actually a simple idea. It says, look at the number of first place votes that all the first place votes that all the candidates got and identify the candidate with the least number of first place votes. Eliminate them, cross them out, but then move that vote. Let, let the second place candidate inherit the votes of that person who got, who got eliminated. So the idea is if I if my first choice is someone who is not very popular, they are eliminated, but my ballot continues to live. Now my second choice becomes important and enters enters the tallying process. So in effect, I am asked, what is my choice beyond just the first choice? Who do I like after my first choice is no longer viable? And this is a lot more information than uh, winner uh, winner take all. Uh, can collect, and this is called instant runoff because what it really does is conducts a series of runoff elections between remaining candidates as certain candidates are eliminated, those with the, the fewest first place votes. And ultimately what you reach is a consensus of what I like to call kind of uh, eventual majority. The person who wins is the person who clears, uh, you know, half the first place votes after this successive iterative retelling process. But that means they have more than half the votes. They have the majority of the votes. And everybody will agree that once somebody has the majority, more than half, that should be the winner. That, that's sort of undisputable in, in, in any arena, uh, academic or, or, or not. So that's just a runoff. It's sort of a succession of iterative, iterative eliminations and you know, uh, of moving the the vote down down everybody's ballot. And another way to to tally uh, ranked ballots is to assign points. So the top person who ends up in the first place in a ballot gets a certain number of points. Next place gets one fewer point. Next place gets one fewer point, and so on, so on down the ballot. Ballot. The last person on somebody's ballot receives zero votes. So everybody gets some number of votes from every ballot. And you simply add up the number of, uh, sorry, number of points. You add up the number of points across all the ballots. And the person with the most points wins. So that's called the board account. 
this is also not unfamiliar. This happens in sports and different kinds of uh, 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 TV shows, etc., where you know contestants who come in first receive a certain number of points. Like you know, if you play, if you if you look at the tennis rankings, right? If you win an ATP tournament, you get a certain number of points. If you're second, you get a certain number of points less than that, the first, etc. And the rankings are based on the total number of points that players accumulate over the course of a of a, a season. So that's that's a that's a familiar method. The last method is something called Condorcet method. The last method that I will talk about. There are many others, and what it does is looks at all the ranked ballots and and compares candidates pairwise. It says, let me look at just these two candidates. Well, how many people placed candidate A over candidate B versus how many people placed candidate B over candidate A? And if A was placed more times over B than B was over A, then A is the winner of that pairwise contest. Well, if there's a candidate who wins all of their head-to-head contests, all of those pairwise contests, that's the person who is the winner. They are pairwise winner over every other candidate, and therefore they should be the overall winner. So instances of this are, you know, like March Madness brackets. You sort of have pairwise contestants to, who, who, who are further down the, down the bracket to, to win. Or uh, I'm trying to think of other examples. This is, this is also not, not unfamiliar. You're sort of pairwise comparing that are a candidate. So those are the three kind of ranked ranked methods that 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 come to mind that are the most most salient or most used in the world. Then there are other methods, and I'll just briefly mention these. And they ask the voters not to compare candidates one against the other. In other words, not to rank them, but just evaluate each candidate sort of on their own merit. So you might ask of a voter, just give me a score from one to 10 for each candidate. So a candidate, uh, a ballot looks like a bunch of numbers from one to 10 or zero to 10 for each of the candidates. And you are scoring again, each one independent of every other candidate. So, if, you know, when you rate stuff on Amazon, this is what you're doing. This is called a range voting. You give a movie on, on, on Netflix, four out of five stars you've done sort of a range vote for this candidate. So this is also something we're not unfamiliar with. A simpler version of range voting is something called approval voting, where you just approve of candidates or not approve of candidates. So basically you circle all the candidates that you like, and you don't circle all the ones that you that you dislike. So all of these methods, I do want to emphasize, are much better than what they call or plurality. Each of these methods does have its challenges and its advantages, but they're all better than plurality. And I can get into those advantages and disadvantages, but I want to pause and, and see, if, <laughs> see if I'm talking too much. <laughs> but no, no, not at all. You, you're doing fine. <laughs> but I, I do want to uh, you know, emphasize that you don't just talk about voting in your book. You also address uh, other aspects of uh, democracy, which... Uh, mathematics can improve. And in addition to talking about how we can cast our votes in ways that could achieve better outcomes, you also talk about the question of representation. And I thought this was interesting as well, because you're getting at something that has been uh, an issue uh, literally since the, the nation's founding. 
uh, questions uh, of both uh, apportionment and uh, representation within bodies. I was wondering if you could perhaps talk about how mathematics can improve these as well, starting with the the question of apportionment, which was, it was fascinating to see just how, to what extent mathematics could really inform that. Right, right. Uh, well, let me just cl close out the, the voting discussion by saying I, I do like instant runout and, and I do endorse it with the, uh, <laughs> so just, just so we don't leave the listeners confused as <laughs> to what, what they might, what they should write their representatives about, write to them about instant runout. <laughs> we should use, we should use instant runout. But but you're right. This, again, a voting is just one instance of where math can can uh, prove to be useful as we try to you know re rebuild our democracy or sort of have it better represent uh, the the wishes and desires and aspirations of of the people. So apportionment is another way and another place where math is really useful. So apportionment is, as the word suggests, you're trying to apportion a certain amount of something to you sort of doling it out to a number of entities. And the question is, how do you do it? So it, the main example in, in, in my book is that of apportionment of the House of Representative seats. So there are 435 of those, and they have to be given to the 50 states somehow, right? Well, it sounds simple, right? You just see how many people live in each state and you kind of proportionally apportion a, some, some, uh, a chunk of those 435 states to each state. But the problem is that there's rounding error, right? So if you actually calculate how many seats should say Massachusetts get, state that I'm sitting in right now, it should get about 9.2 uh, representatives when you do the division. Uh, and every state comes out to be, the, the ideal number of representatives comes out to be some kind of a fraction like this. So you have to round these fractions because we need integer values because we can't chop up representatives and decimals as much as you know we might sometimes like to. But you have to allocate an integer number of people to each state. So how do you round? This also sounds like a simple problem, but it's actually something that has been an issue for, you know, since the, well, it, before the United States was born, but certainly in this country since its inception, and it has never really been resolved to, uh, to, to great satisfaction. There are different methods with which you can round. Uh, Currently, we use something called the Huntington Hill method, which has been used for the last hundred years. It was sort of written into the Reapportionment Act in the in one of the laws governing apportionment in the in the 1940s. Uh, but but it's not clear that it's the best one. There are competing methods, and most economists and mathematicians, people who understand the apportionment problem, will agree that maybe we should be using something else called the uh, Webster method. So this, there's an interesting story there about uh, about mathematics. Uh, the apportionment problem seeps into the electoral college problem because electoral college, of course, is based on the number of you know on the size of the representation of each state in the Congress. So whatever errors are introduced and in, in inequities into the apportionment of representatives to each state are reflected, are sort of perpetuated in this electoral college story. And electoral college is a place where all of these things that I talk about in the book, uh, all the mathematical issues with the mechanics of our democracy come together 
And that's why the Elkhart Code is the last chapter of the book where it kind of all, all, all hit the thing. <laughs> so you, uh, but you also talk about uh, how it is that we can divide, uh, draw these districts in a way that kind of addresses this. And uh, some of these, some of these issues that we have to where, and this is where I, I, I sometimes think of as the ways in which we've sometimes been abusing mathematics when it comes to uh, democracy, about how increasingly you could have uh, people take mathematics and use it to draw these these uh, you know weird districts to achieve op, uh, outcomes that, that they would prefer you know as the people drafting it. And so how is it that that we uh, might better be able to address this using mathematics, basically using mathematics to fight the abuse of mathematics? Yeah, right. That, that That's a great question. And, and, and uh, well, let me back up a little bit on that as well. So we have these districts, right? Each each state is carved up into congressional districts and it's also carved up into state districts. Uh, so we have this rule in the United States where our districts are single winner districts. So each district elects one representative. This mathematically is a mistake as well. So vast majority of democracies do something a little different. Their districts elect more than one person. So they are, they are multi-winner districts. And the, a lot of the problems we see in our democracy, sort of the rise of extremis, extremism and sort of a lack of representation and millions of people feeling disenfranchised can be traced back to this, to this construct that each district elects just one person. All right. So that's another, that, that that's an issue of sort of proportional representation issue that, that I'd like to sort of, I would like more people to be aware of this. But then there is the question that, that, that you ask. So we have these districts that each elect a single person. Well, how do you draw these districts? And this is the problem of, of gerrymandering, right? Which is rampant in the last 20 years. And, uh, both Democrats and Republicans are using really sophisticated mathematics, statistics, data science uh, to really uh, strategically and with surgical precision draw the districts so that the outcome in them is sort of preordained. As a result, something like 90% of the congressional districts in the U.S. are not competitive. Uh, and as a consequence, hundreds of millions of people who live in those districts should rightfully feel like their voice does not matter. Their vote does not and it does not matter because it really, there is nothing that, there's no competitive in those districts. So something like 10% of districts there is competitive and that number is shrinking. What's allowing this, again, is sophisticated uh, mathematical techniques that are now at anyone's fingertips, right? Anybody with a little bit of knowledge of coding and, you know, cleaning census data and, you know, a little bit of dexterity with Python, you don't even need to know no coding. You can, there are sort of online apps where you can do your own gerrymandering. Anyone can do it. Uh, so that is an instance where mathematics has been used for, for sort of to, 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 to take us farther away from sort of the ideal of democracy, representation, the one person, one vote, uh, all of these things that we, that we, that we hope to have in our democracy. But good news is that mathematicians have actually kind of risen up against this. And this is a fantastic development over the last 10 or 15 years where 
mathematicians are saying, okay, no, uh, we are stepping out of our, you know, our little bubbles. I mean, if you think of a mathematician, you don't really think of a person who's out there, you know, doing public outreach and advocating and crusading against misuse of mathematics. But that is actually happening. There are more of us who are doing precisely this, and, it, and it's fantastic. Uh, so there are groups of mathematicians all around the country who are, uh, you know, doing anti-gerrymandering work, who are writing amicus briefs for court cases, gerrymandering court cases, and are even testifying in courts and learning how to be uh, uh, participants in the judicial system surrounding the issues of, of gerrymandering. Uh, so this is really, I'm really excited about this. And and and, I, and the courts, more importantly, the courts are slowly uh, becoming used to this idea that mathematicians are actually experts who have something to say about these things. Fifteen years ago, they would just kind of roll their eyes. There's a famous uh, case where uh, Justice Roberts just kind of like laughed at this mathematical argument that was being presented to show that the map of... Uh, I want to say Wisconsin was gerrymandered. He was sort of deriding <laughs> the mathematics of this, and it was it was really awful. So the court, the Supreme Court at the time, some just some ten years ago, could not engage, did not want to engage with mathematics. Now the uh, things are a little bit different, and that's a really a positive uh, movement in the in the right direction. I hope that that continues. You also address the issues that we have in. Uh, the American system with the civic infrastructure. And you focus in particular upon the Electoral College. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate upon what are some of the mathematical issues with the Electoral College and how it is that we might be able to address that in terms of mathematics. Right. So the Electoral College is where a lot of these uh, problems with the, the, the mathematics of democracy come together. So in a, in a sort of, in a, in a package that includes, well, uh, plurality voting, which is how most states choose the winner of the presidential election, which then gives a mandate to the electoral uh, college of that state, the electors of that state, to then vote for uh, for the president. Of course, hopefully everyone understands that it's not us who pick the president of the United States. It, it is the electors who we, who we give charge to, right? Uh, and there's really nothing in the Constitution or anywhere else on the book that does that that people should or or can can uh, elect the president. So this is this is sort of sort of strange. Uh, the the issues of apportionment, which we talked about earlier, where there is inequity built into the rounding error that that appears when you allocate representatives to each state, they are compounded in the electoral college as well. So. What happens ultimately because of these uh, because of these couple of issues is that people in different states have different uh, kinds of voting power in a sense uh, in the in the process of choosing the elector. So, for for example, a person in Wyoming, when you sort of tally everything and you write down all the equations and you calculate it all, has about four times as much voting power as the person in, in California, uh, and that's really not some kind of Republican Democratic division. I didn't pick those two states for that. It's just there that those are the two most extreme examples then of the biggest state and the, and the smallest state, meaning that it takes about four times as many voters 
in California to sort of counter, to have the same influence on the Electoral College as those uh, as those voters in, in Wyoming do. And, and again, this is because of this this compounding of the effects of winner take all plus the apportionment issue. Uh, so there is this, this basic tenet of one person, one vote is, is really violated in the Electoral College. Now, one might say this is something that's baked into the Constitution. It, you know, it's the Federalist way that gives the state some, some say and some power. Uh, and that argument stands and it's valid. And, and I'm not going to argue against that argument. Uh, but just mathematically, people across the United States, there's a glaring difference in how much their vote counts relative to one another, depending on what state they, they live in. Um, so that's the essential problem with, with the electoral college. And then you get, of course, this difference. So, so this is really visible in the instances where the popular vote comes out different from the electoral college vote, which has happened twice in the last 20 years and almost happened two, I forget, and I've got the two or three more times. So it's a real, it's a, it's a real issue. It's a real problem. And it's kind of a, a glaring deficiency of the electoral college. Let me just also say that, uh, this might be telling as well in support of the mathematical argument is that no country in the world uses anything like the electoral college. Many countries have been created since the United States, none of them opted to have a system like the electoral college, which really is evident if we are able to sort of remove ourselves a little bit from the American exceptionalism and make ourselves <laughs> look around the world, make ourselves look around the world a little bit. It, it should be a red flag that nobody else uses the system. So at the end of your book, you do something that it, uh, as, as a reader is many authors provide conclusions. You have a takeaway as well. And you, you list out very plainly, uh, what are your key recommendations? And you've already, uh, mentioned a couple of them. I was wondering if you could perhaps, uh, just summarize, uh, the rest of them in terms of what, uh, we should change given what, uh, in terms of in order to, uh, attain a more mathematically preferable outcome in American democracy. Right. So, so as a mathematician, I, I, I like to, you know, it's in my genetic code at this point. I have to kind of pack, package things up, sort of wrap them up in the end in as clear and concise a way as I know. So, and I felt like the book had, you know, over the course of many chapters, a lot was said and a lot of math was done. And so for a reader, I thought it might be useful to have this sort of the ultimate, the ultimate takeaway at the end. But essentially there are seven or eight recommendations. Uh, well, like you said, we mentioned a couple of them. So if, if we have to have single winner elections, those are things that are, you know, we're choosing a mayor or a governor or a president of the United States, we should be using instant runoff voting. Uh, so popular vote with instant runoff voting. We should also be using this for primary. Primaries are a whole other mess of mathematics that actually did not have space or time to get into in the book. But one could write another book entirely just about the primaries and, and all the horrible things that they that they imply for democracy because of the mathematics of how they're run. So instant runoff for single winner elections, I would eliminate the electoral college and and just again use a popular vote, you know, countrywide popular vote with with instant runoff 
not winner take all. Uh, I would change our districting to multi-member district. So each district would choose more than one representative, either to state legislature or to the, to the Congress, uh, anywhere between three to seven. Usually, but odd numbers work better, so three, five, or, or, or seven for various mathematical reasons. And to elect those representatives, I would do a generalization of instant runoff, which is like instant runoff, but it's designed to elect more than one person. So basically instant runoff again. I would, and this is crucial, we didn't talk about this, but it's really important. I devote a chapter to this. The House of Representatives is way too small. This number 435 is just one of these instances of of innumeracy running our, our democracy. 435 is an artifact of a certain time and its politics, and it, it, it has it's completely nonsensical at this, this day and age. So I would increase the House. I know they may not be popular. Like, you really want to have more politicians from <laughs> Washington? <laughs> but the answer is, yes, I actually do. So increase the House of Representatives. I would switch the apportionment method from, you know, what suits today, Huntington Hill, to this other method. That's not such a big deal because it, the differences are minor and mathematicians were involved in the selection of Huntington Hill way back. So it's, it's a good system. I think we can do slightly better with Webster, but that's not the top of my list of changes. Um, to prevent gerrymandering, it would help to have a multi-member district, but also we need independent districting commission. The root of the problem with gerrymandering is that state legislatures in most states get to draw it, and whatever party runs the state legislature then draws the district to to favor the outcomes, you know, to to make the outcomes uh, in their favor. So I would implement an independent restricting commission. And then my lab, this possibly could be, should be the first recommendation is we need more overall political quantitative literacy. And we need to introduce it in school. So all these things we're talking about are very easily brought into the curriculum. We can talk about voting methods and we can talk about, you know, apportionment of legislative seats in in middle school math classes, in high school math classes. We can talk about it in an interdisciplinary fashion where someone teaching U.S. history and someone teaching math come together and, and, and introduce this unit into, into the curriculum. If we did that, eventually all of these recommendations, all the other ones, would happen because uh, numerous politically enumerate population would eventually demand that they have. So maybe this last recommendation about introducing more education and political literacy is ultimately somehow the most important. And it's one that your book, I think, demonstrates quite effectively. Thank you. <laughs> we appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? I'm working on several projects. There's sort of research projects in the in this space of, of, of mathematical politics. I have a bunch of students who are working with me. Uh, there's huge student interest for for anything that happens in this in this intersection of math and democracy. As, as you might guess, people are just people just excited to to learn about again these impartial, universal mathematical ways of managing our democracy. So I have several research projects. I'm organizing a couple of conferences. I am sort of running this Institute for Math and Democracy. Uh, you know, just have three full-time jobs, 
my wife just rolls her eyes at me every time I say, oh, you know, I'm doing this too. And just kind of walks away in disgust <laughs> at this point. But, <laughs> but yeah. Well, I really appreciate the time taken out of your very ske- uh, busy schedule to speak with us. I-, I hope you have a wonderful day. This was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.